With Tom Brady set to star in his 10th Super Bowl, only two NFL quarterbacks have been able to topple number 12 in the league's title game, Nick Foles and Eli Manning, who did it twice. Ernie Accorsi was the Giants' general manager who acquired top draft pick Manning via a trade with San Diego, a front office move that set the storied Giants franchise on the path to great success, including those two Super Bowl victories over Brady and the Patriots. On the latest Stories with Street Cred podcasts, Accorsi discusses his long and accomplished career as an NFL executive, which included his tenure with the Giants. He also talks about his childhood roots in Hershey, Pennsylvania, which was for years a nexus of incredible sports events and sports icons passing through. Hershey was where the Philadelphia Eagles held training camp, and it was also where the Philadelphia Warriors and later 76ers NBA team trained. Wilt Chamberlain scored a record 100 points against the Knicks in Hershey when Chamberlain played for the Warriors, a game which Accorsi's father attended. Before Accorsi began his career working in the NFL, he started out as a sports writer following graduation from Wake Forest. One of his first writing assignments was a feature on Archie Moonlight Graham, the real-life baseball player whom actors Burt Lancaster and Frank Whaley portrayed in the film classic Field of Dreams. Later, while writing for the Philadelphia Inquirer, Accorsi got the scoop of the decade, the exclusive on Wilt Chamberlain being traded by the 76ers to the Los Angeles Lakers. Accorsi had stops at St. Joseph's University and Penn State as sports information director and assistant SID, respectively, sandwiched around the Inquirer job. And his first NFL job was public relations director for the then Baltimore Colts, the team Accorsi rooted for growing up in Hershey. Accorsi was later the Colts' GM before the franchise moved to Indianapolis, and that tenure included the 1983 NFL Draft when top pick quarterback John Elway forced a trade to the Broncos. Accorsi was next hired by Cleveland Browns owner Art Modell to be the team's GM, a seven-year post that included signing QB Bernie Kosar and later having Bill Belichick as head coach. Accorsi finished his NFL executive career with the Giants, working under the legendary George Young first before succeeding Young as Big Blue's GM. It was a nifty bookend to Accorsi's distinguished and colorful career. I'm pleased to have a longtime former NFL executive Ernie Accorsi on the Stories with Street Cred podcast. Thank you, Ernie, for coming on. And first things first, how are you doing and how have you been holding up this past year when all of our lives were upended by a pandemic? Uh, thank you, Christian. Thank you for having me. I'm doing fine. Um, I, uh, you know, I'm up at age, so I'm in that vulnerable group. But uh, I've stayed pretty much isolated. I walk, walk my dog. Uh, <laughs> but I've, I've figured out, it's funny how you just start to work through different restrictions. I figured out that there are ways to get food delivered and um, groceries delivered. So I've had sports to get me through at least, uh, you know, by the summer when 
hockey and basketball and baseball started and then the NFL. So that's carried me through the, the period. I'm always happy to, to look, look at games. So I, I've, been, I've been fine, hoping that uh, this, this soon will fade away. I think we all are, and I'm happy to hear that you've been doing well. Well, there is a big game coming up, Ernie. Um, I'm wondering, first of all, do you have any a preference to who is the victor in the upcoming Super Bowl? No, I don't have a rooting interest. I, mm-hmm. I, um, I generally, that's the one benefit of being retired, except for when the Giants play or the Browns, which I worked for for eight years. Um, Right. I, I really don't. And a couple other teams, you root a lot of times for friends, the Bears. Um, uh, but other than that, I, I can at least relax and enjoy the game. Uh, so I, I'm looking forward to seeing it. It's been that way all through the playoffs. I kind of would have liked to have seen Buffalo do well um, because of the, the. I love the town, the fans, and, and the general manager there is, is a close friend of mine. So I was rooting for them. But other than that, no, I don't have a dog in the fight. Um, so I'll just relax and get some popcorn and, and watch the game. <laughs> Can you believe that Tom Brady is in another Super Bowl? I don't doubt him. Uh, <laughs> I, yeah, I believe it because there's nothing I, that he does that surprises me. He's he's just unbelievable. He, he finds a way, even if you know he's not on his A game, he still finds a way to, to, to win a game that he has to win. He's been a brilliant quarterback for so long. He, I said this now, not necessarily this year as much, but over the last 20 years of his career, uh, I, I've always thought that, I mean, I'm a quarterback guy. I came into the league with Johnny Unitas um, and have had good quarterbacks everywhere I've been, fortunately. But he made, in my opinion, the, the most difficult position in sports, with the possible exception of goalie in hockey, Look, look easy, and and uh, it's not easy. But he does it with such ease, in such style that it looks easy. So he's had a brilliant career. Uh, this doesn't surprise me. They have a tough task though, uh, with Kansas City. Kansas City is a tremendous team, great speed, great offense, good defense. A tremendous defensive coach. He was with us in New York, um, and he, uh, he he devised a tremendous scheme. I thought uh, blitzing. Buffalo so much and really giving them enough time to throw the ball. So it, they're going to be tough to beat. And they have a pretty good quarterback themselves, Ernie. <laughs> yes, they do. I, I, right now I think he's number one. He's, he's really unstoppable. He can do it all. Uh, he can throw on the run. He can run. Uh, he can get out of trouble. He can throw from the pocket. He's smart. Great team leader. And it seems to play with a joy. Uh, I, I really in, enjoy watching him play. Very refreshing. Going back, I'm going to switch gears and dial back a few years, Ernie, starting with when you grew up in Hershey, Pennsylvania. And I'm wondering, what were your earliest sports memories? And then how did you go down the path towards your sports writing career, which preceded your work in the NFL as an executive? Uh, Christian, I was... I was really fortunate to grow up in this town. I mean, it's in South Central Pennsylvania, um, 90 miles from Philadelphia, 90 miles from Penn State, 85 miles from Baltimore. So I was always able to see big league games, um, and my father was a terrific sports fan. But what, what the real benefit was that from the time 
I was 10 years old in 1951 until I was 27 in 1967. The Philadelphia Eagles had Hershey as their training camp. Uh, it, was oh, wow. a, it was a different town then, population 5,000. They stayed downtown, well, it's not much of a downtown, but in, in, on Chocolate Avenue, the main street, in a community club. And they would walk through the Hershey Park, which was wide open then. It was not, you didn't have to pay to get into the park, you paid to get on a ride. But it was, you know, it was more of a walking park. It obviously had amusement, uh, you know, events. But uh, they would walk through the park. And, of course, as kids, we would just follow them uh, and go to practice. And I, I watched practice virtually every day, uh, either in the morning or in the afternoon. And even when I got older and I worked, I would, I would catch one of the two. And in addition to that, they played two or three preseason games here every year. So I essentially saw every team in the NFL at the time. There were only 12 teams and then eventually 14. I saw every team in the NFL play here except the Cleveland Browns and the 49ers. Every other team. And, and I say the Rams, too, because the Rams came here and practiced for a week prior to an opening game in Cleveland after the Eagles left in September of 52. So I got to see them every day, that great star-studded Ram team. So I, I was spoiled. I got to see pro football, you know, so I knew what pro football was like. And the preseason games in those days, uh, you know, the rosters were in the 50s. So they played, I mean, I know even with the Colts in 1970, we would play Unitas a half and Marl a half. Yeah, we played the win. We went six and zero one year. There were six preseason games, so I saw all of that. And I saw some regular season games. I saw the Colts play the Rams in '53, but to have the Eagles here, and in addition to that, the Philadelphia Warriors and later the '76ers trained here. Um, the uh, University of Pennsylvania trained here. They had good football in the '50s, and we had an American Hockey League team, the Hershey Bears, which won more Calder Cups than any team in the AHL's history. And at the time, there were six NHL teams and six, uh, basically, American Hockey League teams. So other than the the, the, the Montreal Canadiens, who a lot of those signees would go right into juniors and not play in the AHL, I saw almost every star that played in the NHL come through here. So I had such an exposure to sports. I was a sports-minded kid to start with, but I had such an exposure to seeing it live that it gave me a, a tremendous opportunity to, to to understand it a little better. Did you ever have the opportunity later on to talk with Frank Gifford and let him know, I assume you may have seen him during that stretch of time with the Giants? Yeah, it's interesting, too, because the summer of 59, uh, they hadn't acquired Wyatt Tittle yet. Uh, Charlie Connolly was getting up in age, and and I think they were thinking about you know who's our successor going to be in New York, and they played a preseason game here against the Eagles, and which I was at, and Gifford was the starting quarterback. In fact, in the program, I saved all my programs. In the program in those days, they would put on the center spread center spread with a big advertising display, usually a cigarette, Chesterfield or Camel they would put the starting lineups. And Gifford was listed as a quarterback, as a starting lineup. And it was the big quarterback experiment for Frank Gifford. Now, whether he played other preseason games, I don't know. But he played, you know, he played that night. Uh, they got beat. And I don't think he played necessarily great. Uh, so I talked to him about that. And, of course, you know, being a great 
athlete and competitor. He said, well, I never really got a long look. Uh, but <laughs> they then traded for Tittle, so those, you know, that was over. But, of course, all through his career, he threw a lot of uh, halfback option passes. The other thing I wanted to mention about those preseason games, that I actually saw Johnny Unitas throw his first pass in a Colt uniform. Uh, he was cut by the Steelers in 55 without playing one play in preseason. Hard to believe, but it's true. And the Colts signed him in 56. The first preseason game was against the Eagles. I saw him throw his first pass. I saw him throw his first touchdown pass. But the, the year before 55, and I, I was a Colt fan from day one. I was not an Eagle fan, despite all that exposure to the Eagles. I was kind of a little bit of a rebel, and everybody rooted for the Eagles. And the Colts came up here in 54, beat the Eagles 10-0 in a preseason game. And I, I became a Colt fan. So 55 was the breakthrough year. They drafted Alan Amici, and they drafted George Shaw, who was Rookie of the Year as a quarterback. Uh, so he was the rising star. We had never really heard of Unitas. And uh, he had to play the another squad game the week before, and I guess he played for both teams and looked pretty good. But I went to the game. I always bought my ticket on the Colts' side. And they took Shaw out after one quarter. And, you know, as a 15-year-old, I was complaining. I had spent $2 for a ticket. Um, and I, I wanted to see Shaw. I didn't want to see this guy. I didn't even know what his name was. In fact, I, I can recall the PA announcer called him Unitas. Uh <laughs> And the guy next to me was from Baltimore, and he said, calm down, kid. You know, this guy threw five touchdown passes and then in a squad game on Tuesday night. And, you know, I don't, you know, I had no expert's eye at that time, and he's throwing lasers all over the field, including a touchdown pass. Uh, and, you know, then went back to the bench until Shaw got hurt halfway through the season. He took over, and when Shaw came back, they kept United as quarterback in 1957, Won the title in '58 and '59. So, uh, yeah, I talked to Gifford. I talked to Wellington Marrow too. I, you know, I, I love the history of sports, and I used to say to him, I mean, do you remember coming here? And uh, they had played here twice. They had played here in '51, which I also saw that game. And I said, did you, did you, did you take the bus? Or yeah, he said we bust. And he said in '51, I drove here with my father. With my father, we drove together, uh, made a day out of it. But. It's, uh, yeah, I had, you know, great memories, and I guess I kind of thought all the kids grew up with an NFL team in their hometown, but they didn't. Did uh, Super Bowl three hurt that much more, Ernie, with the result and the way it played out after Namath's guarantee? Yeah, so I was not with the Colts yet in 19... Uh, it was the year before, right? I, well, I, I came to the Colts in '70, which was two years later. I was I, in my first year. We went to Super Bowl five, but I was a rabid Colts fan, and it was heartbreaking for me. And it's interesting that I was a sports writer for the Philadelphia Inquirer from '66 to '69. So I saw I saw the '66 Super Bowl, the first one. I didn't see number two, and I didn't see number three. I was in working a desk, and as you know, as a former newspaper man, I mean, in those days, you you put copy out, you put the paper out, so if you weren't covering something, you worked the rim. And I'm on the rim that afternoon, and like everyone else, thought, you know, the Colts would win with ease. I didn't know much about the AFL, and 
the sports editor came over to me, knew I was a Colt fan. He said, look, there's, it, it, the Enquirer had a rule. No radios and no TVs in the, in the office. Hard to believe, but that was the rule. Wow. So I didn't know. I mean, I, I knew the score because, you know, we had wire machines. But a sports editor, Ron Smith, came over and said, there's a, there's a TV in the managing editor's office. If you want to, if the Colts will have to lose this game. They're losing 16 nothing. And so I, they let me off to go over to the managing editor's office, and I watched the last eight minutes. I saw Unitas take him down the field and score after he relieved Marl. And then I saw him taken down the field again and throw an interception in the end zone and saw the end of the game. Yeah, I was devastated. But, Christian, I never saw anything in my career like the like the after effect of that game when I got there in 70. Everyone was still there. Um, Shula was gone, uh-huh. but the staff was almost intact. Most of the players were the same. The front office, everyone still was in shock over that loss. And to this day, I mean, I look back now and try to evaluate a little bit more after all these years of experience. And if you looked at it now and studied the two teams, it should not have been considered a, a huge upset. The Jets probably, I mean, the Jets had better receivers. I, I mean, I love Earl Morrow, but they had the better quarterback. They had better running backs with Snell and Boozer. Mm-hmm. Um, they probably had as good, if not better, offensive line. Uh, and they had an awful good defense. So it's, And they had Weeb Eubank, you know, who had won 58 and 59 world championships. So it should not have been a shock, but there was that kind of lack of respect among the old guard of the NFL, which I was one of them as a fan, about the AFL. Uh, but but I'm an exception because there isn't a person still alive that was involved in a part of the cold organization that doesn't think that the next Sunday the Colts would have won 45 to nothing. They are convinced of it. And, and it's something they never got over. So by the time 70 came around, you know, that game, the Super Bowl five is, is considered a, a game with a lot of turnovers. But there was a reason for that, because I, I spent part of that game on the sidelines. Dallas was considered next year's champions. Mm-hmm. They, had lost, they had lost two championship games to the Packers. They, they, they couldn't win, you know, they, and they didn't even get to another championship game. They lost in the playoffs. Everyone always, even Sports Illustrated, would pick them to win it because of their talent. And everybody... Uh, you know, started to think they can't win the big one. The Colts were coming off the, the paranoia of Super Bowl three, and that game was played. I mean, I've been you know on the sidelines for other games, and I've seen hundreds of, of NFL games. I never saw a game played with more desperation. Both teams played with a feeling of of like desperate. We can't lose another big game, and I and it was vicious. The hitting was unbelievable. <laughs> and I, I, I mean, I was that. I mean, I, I like I said, I got, I went to practice every day. I saw what hitting is like in the National Football League, but I never, never saw or felt anything like that. And I think that's one of the reasons there were so many turnovers. But I know that the, if the Colts would have lost that game, I, I don't know how many years it would have taken them to recover because the, the devastation in that organization after Super Bowl three, being the first team to lose to an AFL team, and the way they lost it. After the after name is guaranteed, I guarantee uh, really left its scars. I yes. wanted I wanted to go back to your sports writing career, Ernie, and how did that get started? Was that in the cards because of your growing up in such a a rich 
sports experience in Hershey? Did you want to be a sports writer? You know, first of all, I wanted to work in sports, but I there was a, not the town library, but the Hershey High School library. I just kind of came upon a book uh, in 1957 in the tenth grade. I picked it up, and it was called Branch Rickey, Great American. And it was, you know, kind of a rudimentary book uh, written probably for people that were of the high school age, more or less. And I read it. And the minute I read that book, and that obviously focused in on the Jackie Robinson signing, breaking the color line in baseball, um, my first thought was, I want to be, I want to be a baseball general manager. That's what fascinated me the most. I really, maybe I already evaluated myself. I wasn't going to make the big leagues, but I, I really wanted to be a <laughs> baseball general manager more than I wanted to be a baseball player. And that was, you know, I bought the Sporting News every week, and if I started to realize in those days, you know, the Sporting News was very large, uh, and it's in baseball, especially then when there was all trading, no free agency. It, it, baseball's always been a general manager sport more than football. I mean, the coaches pretty much ran. There were no general managers in football until really Tex Schramm in the late 40s and then Roselle in the early 50s. The coaches ran everything. And there wasn't as much trading, but there was so much trading in baseball. Uh, so you read all about the GMs and, and making deals, and, and uh, I became more and more fascinated with it. Now, why sports writing? Well, if you analyzed in the 50s and early 60s when I went to college, uh, almost every executive that had, you know, started uh, general managers, assistant general managers, were almost all former sports writers. All the major commissioners were former sports writers or PR guys. Roselle, um, Fort Frick, and Walter Kennedy. And it, it, Walter Can- Campbell, Clarence Campbell in hockey was a... Um, lawyer, but all the rest were. But there were also GMs, Harry Dalton, Frank Cashin, Gabe Paul. Uh, they, they were all former either PR guys or sports writers. So the way to go, I mean, there weren't internships. The organizations were small. So the way to break in was to become a sports writer. And in those days, there was such a friendly relationship between the media and the clubs. I mean, you know, they gave them gifts at Christmas. They, uh, uh, they, they traveled with the teams. They were on trains for the most part. They became familiar. You know, they saw stuff and they didn't write it. Um, you know, not that they were housemen. They broke stories. But it was a total different atmosphere. So they would hire newspaper men as PR directors. In fact, when I covered the 76ers for the Philadelphia Inquirer, this was 68 and 69, I got gift certificates uh, at Christmas. And everybody got things. Carol Rosenblum gave gifts every Christmas to the media that covered the team, including television sets. Amazing. Uh, so there was a totally different attitude, and, and that was kind of the avenue, because there was no other way to go. I mean, if you were a scout in baseball, you weren't getting a general manager shot. Most of those guys were part-time. And even the full-time guys, if you look at the legendary scouts, they didn't become general managers. Media people ended up getting hired and moving up through the chain. Uh, some ex-players, but really not many. We we hadn't entered the era that the attorneys were getting jobs. Uh, you know that that hadn't started yet. Uh, and of course, there was no players' union, so there really wasn't a lot of strife in labor. So 
I really started when I w went to Wake Forest University. I kind of went down there because I, I was a pretty good golfer and I wanted to play golf at the ACC. I got and my father warned me, "You're getting in over your head. You're getting in." <laughs> the people they don't play other sports. They play golf all year round, those guys, and you're not going to be, you know, if you go to Villanova or Boston College uh, or St. Joe's, you're going to probably make the golf team. And as it turned out afterwards, I, he was right. I, I went way in over my head. And I, there was, I ran right into Jay Siegel, who won three British amateurs, two U.S. amateurs, um, and, and then right after that, Lanny Watkins and Curtis Strange. There was no way in the world was I going to make that golf team. So I basically decided that, you know, I, I, I was going to concentrate on the college newspaper, and I became a sports columnist for the college newspaper. So I started sending out letters to editor and publisher. I used all their addresses, and there were a lot more newspapers in those days, and I got two replies. Out of all of them that I sent out, I got an offer from the Charlotte News, and I got a reply from now who's become a lifelong friend, Jerry Eisenberg of the Newark Star-Ledger, oh, wow. who, who redlined my whole, all my columns, split infinitive, all the, and I mean, <laughs> destroyed my confidence. So I told him many times since then, I said, look, I really appreciate the fact that you took the time, but you almost wiped me out. I, I, and I said, you know, you kept putting lines through may, many of my sentences that said split infinitive. I, I said, I don't even know what split infinitive meant. In fact, I don't know what it means now. <laughs> so uh, I I majored, you know, I took all the journalism. They, they didn't have a major in journalism, but I took every journalism course Wake Forest had. Uh, and I, uh, you know, so I became the sports columnist for the paper, and I got the one offer, and that's how I started. Uh, but my eye was always on a ball club. My eye was always on sports administration. And, you know, shortly after I started the Charlotte News, um, I got uh, drafted, and I had to go in the army. But before I leave the Charlotte News, uh, I will tell you something happened to me there that I did not realize for oh, it's twenty years later. Uh, on and I looked at the date on the. My mother kept a scrapbook of my first, you know, year. Actually, it wasn't there a year, six months. So I looked at the date. I'd only been at the Charlotte News a week, and they sent me out to cover the reunion of a minor league baseball team that had become legendary in Charlotte because they started the season undefeated. They won 25 or 26 in a row, and they they just disbanded the league. They were so far ahead, and this is the 20s, they disbanded the league. So they were having a reunion in 1963. They were all very elderly. And I got out there with a photographer. I didn't know anything about it. And I said, Who's the, who was the star? And I was led to this guy named Archie Graham. And I read, I mean, I interviewed him. The photographer took a picture of him. I wrote an article about him. And that was the end of that. Uh, I, it would have it died with that information right there if 20 years later, on the 20th anniversary of... Uh, Kennedy's assassination. I was home in Hershey. It's my mother. It's my, visiting my mother. And I went to the attic to, to look up an article I had written the day after Kennedy was assassinated. I was supposed to cover a Davidson-Wofford football game. And despite the world canceling all their games, that athletic director refused to cancel that game. 
Incredible. And I, unbelievable. So I was on the phone with him several times, and being a young, you know, reporter, full of myself a little bit, I told him, I said, I just want you to know something. I'm going to rip you for this. And I said, I'm going to rip you for this for a week. Not every day for a week. I said, Broadway shut down. The NBA shut down. The Army-Navy game shut down. And you're going to make me come out there and cover Wofford and Davidson? And finally, uh, they, he called me and started to read a pre prepared statement. And I wasn't going to hear that. I said, are you playing or not? No. I said, well, you just saved yourself a few days, but I'm still going to rip you for two days for even thinking about it. So I wanted to find that article. And I went in my scrapbook. It was only one scrapbook my mom kept. And I paged through it, and here comes what pops into my face. And I, and I said 83. It's 93, 30th anniversary. What pops into my face is Archie Moonlight Graham. And I said, my God, I interviewed Moonlight Graham, the real Moonlight Graham. I had no recollection, no idea. I had just seen the movie which was in the 90s, not the 80s. And I took the article and read it. I will tell you, Kristen, it sent chills up and down my spine because I, 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 you know, I, it was just by accident. If I don't go and look at that scrapbook, which I've never looked at before or since, I never realize it. It's amazing. But it's him. And, I, and I read my story, and the story was verbatim the way the account was portrayed in the movie. Verbatim. You're, and of course... One time, yeah. yeah, you're of course referring so, to Field of Dreams yeah. and Burt Lancaster yeah. uh, played Moonlight Graham, or the yeah, older he didn't version. Look like Burt Lancaster, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that that was what I, that was my one moment of uh, recollection of any kind of notoriety in Charlotte. Otherwise, I, it was undistinguished. And was it true, Ernie, that Moonlight Graham only had one at bat, or was that? something that they had uh, liberty with on the Hollywood version? No, it was absolutely accurate. It, it was, uh, he only had one at bat, and it wasn't even official at bat. It was a sacrifice. Yeah. And, and um, they, it, it, so, no, it was, and they never batted again. He, went, he, got, he broke his leg, in, I guess, the next year and went to medical school. Never played again. And uh, but he was and his stats for that year when there was twenty six games that they won in a row. I mean, there were something like three eighty. He was by far the star of the team. But I it just by chance, I just when I you know I asked somebody there. I said, "Who was the, who should I interview?" They said, "Well, Archie Graham was the best player. He, you know, he played in the big leagues. That's what that's what he told me." So I interviewed him. Not a bad and, start uh, to your. Uh... Sports writing career. <laughs> no, no, by accident, believe me, by no ability of my own. Later on, I know when you were working for the Inquirer, Ernie, you had a, a big scoop with regard to Wilt Chamberlain. Yes, what I did is I went in the Army, and when I came out, I, I kept, well, during the Army, I kept writing to Bob Mazel because I had met him. I covered a Colt Packer game for him when I was in Charlotte. And I met him, and I said, boy, I'd love to, you know, because I, I wanted to come back to the Northeast where I grew up. And he said, uh, so I sent him some articles, and he, he thought they were okay. He said, well, I'll keep you posted. So I'm in the Army, and several openings occurred, and I couldn't, you know, I was still in the Army. So when I got out, I was ready to go back to Charlotte, because they have to keep the job for you, by law. And while I was um, getting ready to come back to Charlotte, I get a call from Maisel, and he... Uh, 
says, I've got, we've got an opening down here. So I worked there for 14 months. I, I covered the 65 Masters. I was lucky because that was the historic, when uh, Jack Nicholas broke Hogan's record, shot a 65 on Saturday and blew away the field. Um, and, uh, and then uh, I got the SID job at St. Joe's in Philadelphia, which I sort of had grown up rooting for. Uh, and I didn't go to school there because I didn't have football. So, But I loved St. Joe's basketball, Jack Ramsey. Was there a year, and then I went to the Inquirer, and I got the 76er beat. And uh, I, I broke one big story. <laughs> and and that, was, uh, that was the Will Chamberlain trade, and that was an unusual circumstance, too. Um, you know, again, you're I'm on the desk. But what they would do in those today, if you're a writer, you don't have to move copy. They don't even have a copy desk. But if you didn't, if you didn't have a game that night, or you weren't on the road with the team, you had a you had to move copy, write headlines, edit copy, and give it to the slot man. And I was sitting around the rim uh, one night between games. Uh, I'm sorry, the season the, the season that just ended, and um, the uh, one of the you know the clerk said, Ernie, there's a call call for you online, too. So I pick it up. Very distinguished-sounding man and very articulate. He said, look, you're going to think I'm some guy just calling out of the blue, and there's no way I can you know, prove, my, prove my credibility. But I just had dinner at the Wayne Inn. I can still remember Wayne, Pennsylvania. was a suburb right near Villanova. And I was sitting, and I could I overheard... The owner, Irv Kozlov, and a PR director, Bob Patron, they've traded Will Chamberlain. And I'll tell you exactly who, they're, who they traded him for. Shaler Halliman, Daryl Inhofe, Archie Clark. And I'm writing all this down, and he said, I'm only calling you and telling you uh, because I read your stuff, and, uh, and you're going to follow up on it to try to you know, get more substantiation to this than my call. But... I can't, like I said, I can't prove anything, but that's what happened. So, that's a heck of a call, Ernie. <laughs> it is. So I, I went over to Frank Dolson, who was the star of our paper, the chief sports columnist, who's legendary in Philadelphia. I said, sure, I "What do I him. do?" He said, "Yeah." I, I, I said, "What do I do?" He said, "All right, let's both make some calls. The first thing you do is call Jack Ramsey. He was the he was the general manager and coach." And um, or he was about to be the coach. He was the general manager. Alex Hannum had left. He said, "No, what you're going to? He's going to deny it." Now I had been his SID, Christian, so uh, I, I knew him pretty well. He said, well, "What you're going to have to bet on right now is how he reacts because he's going to be a, he's going to be shocked." But don't dance. Hit him right between the eyes and say, "I've just learned you've traded Chamberlain." Shock him and see how he reacts. And I did that. And Ramsey, who was very poised and very, he was a, had a doctor's degree, uh, was stunned. I could, I, and he, he stammered. What? And he didn't say, that's preposterous. He said, how'd you find that out? Um, that's a good so, start. <laughs> yeah, it's a good start. So I, and, but then he, you know, he composed himself and, Backpedaled into it. Now that's it, it, I don't know where you got that stuff, but you know, no, it's not true. So, so I, I told Dolson. He said, "Well, he said I just called somebody in the organization. I'm not going to tell you who it was." And he didn't confirm it. He said, "But 
I got the same reaction. Now, so I called Patron, and uh, it wasn't it because he was. Now I'm really starting to get confident because, in a minute, you know, it was it was no answering machines in those days, and I knew his, his wife. And she said he's not home yet. So right away, I'm thinking, sure, he's out to dinner with the owner. So because he was the PR director at the time, and he had been a sports writer there. He called me back. He said, what's up? And I said, you just traded Chamberlain, didn't you? And he really was, you know, he was really in shock. So I went I went to Dolson. Dolson said, look, you're going to have to get permission on this from, from the sports editor and the magazine editor. Uh, but, I mean, I think you should be prepared to go with it. So I went to the sports editor, so did Dolson, with me. And they took me to the managing editor, and he was a tough guy. And he's listening and listening, questioning me, uh, pretty tough questions. And he said, okay, we're going we're gonna to go with it, and we're going to copyright it and go front page. Now, the reason you would copyright it, there wasn't 24-hour cycles like there are now. But if you copyrighted it, they had to attribute it to you. So if, if it got on the, there was no ESPN or anything, but if, if the big thing was it's going to hit the wire. So once it hits the Associated Press wire, they had to attribute it to the Philadelphia Inquirer. He said, we're not going with it until the final final. He said, we'll get just as much credit for it, even if we miss some of the homes in the far suburbs. But I don't want to, he said, I don't want to uh, run this in, in the 930 or even the 1130 because there was a tabloid there. It was a mid-morning paper. He said, they'll go with it and claim it was theirs. He said, we're going to have to hold off on it. But let me just tell you something, son. <laughs> I was 26, 26 years old. He said, if this turns out to be bogus, I can't fire you. The union's pretty strong here. You're going to be covering swim meets at the Philadelphia Cricket Club with 12 and 14 kids diving in the pool, okay? <laughs> That's what you're going to be covering. So I went back and I wrote the story. Didn't quote I didn't even have the guy's name. Didn't quote anybody. Wrote the story. Went to, and I on the byline, I put by Ernie Accorsi and Frank Dolson. And Dolson said, take my name off of it. He said, I've had my glory. This is yours. So we went with it, and it was turned out to be true. To the letter. I mean, exactly each player and everything. Um, I got it laminated. That That's that the lead, at least the first several paragraphs, is in my on my wall here in Hershey. Oh, but pretty cool. it's interesting that years later, and this is 2001, that, that was 69, 2001, I'm at a banquet in uh, Princeton, New Jersey, and Dolson's there as a speaker. We're both at the head table. We had just come off the Super Bowl. And I tell the story, and I say, you know, I always remembered uh, the class of Frank Dolson taking his name off that byline. Dolson got up and said, well, I appreciate your comments, Ernie, but I wanted my name off of that because I didn't trust that you had the right story. <laughs> you were on your but way. Was a, I was going to say, uh, Ernie, you were on your way to being the next Dick Young. So what happened after that with your sports writing career? Did you just decide well, that that wasn't for you? No, I mean, I, I enjoyed it. I mean, I had a good beat, you know, but those days, I mean, the 76ers had just won a world championship. They, the 76ers, pro basketball in Philadelphia is a big big deal. It was bigger than hockey then. Um, still may be for all I know. But 
it, it, you know, it's, it's Philadelphia. Uh, it, and uh, so I was happy, but I, I still had this burning desire that I had mentioned to you earlier. I wanted to be a sports executive. You know, I, I wasn't exactly on a track to be a baseball GM. That was my first love. Like I said, there weren't that many football general managers. And I, 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 and I thought, well, if I can't be a general manager, you know, I'd still like to be an administrator or an athletic director or, or something. And uh, I, I decided to, uh, I, I decide, what I decided to do is go back and get my master's in journalism. I had already had a child. It was going to be a stretch financially. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I knew I'd get a grad assistantship because I had this experience, but they weren't going to pay me much. So I applied to all the journalism schools, Columbia, Missouri, Ohio State, Penn State, and, and uh, got in. Um, and the, Sandy Padway, who was covering Penn State for the Enquirer, knew I was doing this. He was a close friend. And he said, you know, Penn State's got a job open. Why don't They're going to pay you a regular salary. Why don't you call Jim Tarman, the athletic director? And, um, I mean, I don't know how you're going to make it. You know, you're going to get $2,000 a year as a grad assistant. You have a child. And um, so I, I called Tarman. Tarman had me come up for an, an interview. Um, I got I, I did. I said, I'll get back to you. And I didn't hear from him for weeks and being you know young and petulant i said i haven't heard from this guy in a couple of weeks so i read him a, a curse note of course there's no emails i'm going to remove my self-consideration so he called me and he said look i apologize my father passed away and i'm an only child and i had to go through all kinds of arrangements and now i felt about two inches tall but i felt embarrassed and and it never went any further. So that was it. I mean, it could have ended right there. They hired somebody. He didn't last long. I don't know what happened, but he didn't last long. So Tarman called me back in the middle of that 68 season, which was an undefeated season. Paterno's now surfacing as a pretty popular college coach and said, look, this job's going to be open again. Are you interested? I said, yes, I am. I had regretted it as it was. I said, but I can't leave. I'm in the middle of covering the 76ers, and they're in first place. I, I can't, I can't let leave them in, in, in this situation until the season's over, until the playoffs are over. And he waited for me and gave me the job. And the job was, it was a, you know, it's a great school. It was a great program. Came off an undefeated season. Went to the Orange Bowl. Went to the, were undefeated again. Went to the Orange Bowl. It was a great place to be at the, at the perfect time. And Christian, I maintain. And I always will that if I don't take that job, I never become, I I don't think I ever get into pro football, let alone become a general manager. That changed everything for me because when I, because of when I was there and because of Joe Paterno's glamour and and when the Colts hired me, I, I never kidded myself that they were, that they wanted me, but they wanted a piece of Penn state because Penn state not only was winning, but you know, I, at the time, I mean, Sports Illustrated wrote a big article, a Big Ten program with Ivy League academics. They had so much prestige that to be associated with them is how I got hired by the Colts. I'm convinced of that. So that was a fateful turn in my career, and that's what headed me in that direction. And once I went to the Colts, you know, I, I, my baseball 
dreams were over. I mean, I was on a football course in a football track. What was that first experience like as an executive, Ernie, with the Colts? Well, it was a you know, great. The t- timing was great too because we only had four or five people in the front office. Uh, it wasn't like it is now. We had a player personnel director who was Upton Bell, the commissioner's son, former commissioner's son. We had George Young, um, who later I succeeded as general manager of the Giants, and Dixus Mansky, a retired player center, who was the pro guy. That was it. We had a part-time scout on the West Coast, Milt Davis. We had a, a equipment manager, a ticket manager, a comptroller, and a general manager. That's it. And everybody did everything. The equipment manager scouted. I was taken on the road. Up the belt, took me on the road, taught me how to scout, taught me personnel, had me write reports. Everybody was involved and did everything. We all were, and I understand, too, that the draft was in late January. You didn't have any time to do too much documentation on, on a draft. I mean, we were in the Super Bowl on January 17th. The draft was 10 days later. Uh, so everybody was involved. Everybody was cramming. Everybody looked at film. It was all film then. And it was, it was a tremendous uh, ex- opportunity. I didn't realize it at the time. But here I go from 11-0 Orange Bowl into my second year we went. I mean, in my first year in the NFL, we won the Super Bowl. I, and I, I think to myself, is it going to be this easy? Well, I found out, no, it, it's not going to be this easy. But those are my first two years as an administrator. Didn't lose a game. Well, I'm sorry, won two championships. We lost four games in '70 and in, in the in, uh, in the NFL. But but uh, it was and it was a great organization. Carol Rosenblum owned the team. Don Klosterman, one of the most underrated general managers in, in, uh, in NFL history, was a GM. Um, there were great characters with that team. Unitas and Marl were the quarterbacks. John Mackey, Ted Hendricks, Tom Matty, all these stars were, were Mike Curtis were on that team, and I was just a kid yet. Uh, it was, it was, and they were, you know, they were the Baltimore Colts now. They were, uh, we had that. We had, we had not had a losing season since 1956, and we turn around and go right back to the championship game in '71 and lose the championship game. But um, it was it was a great experience. You had a brush with Hollywood when you were still with the Colts, Ernie, in the early '80s. The movie Diner, for those that don't know, is a wonderful film, classic, timeless. Um, and it features very prominently in the story arc, the Baltimore Colts. And how did you get involved with that film, Ernie? Well, their advanced people came and, and uh, mentioned to me about um, this movie they had in mind. And, um, you know, one of our cooperation, I said, well, you certainly will get that. And their first idea was to reenact to have these people, instead of watching TV, these guys that hung out at the diner together, to reenact the game um, on the field, you know, with actors and so forth. Uh, and they, it's funny, they said to me, could you provide us with throwback uniforms of, of that era? I said, we haven't changed our uniforms. 
so it doesn't make any difference. We haven't changed our uniforms since 1957. So, yeah, I have no problem. I said, but, you know, that's not going to work. That Those things always were fake. Uh, well, anyway, they came up with the idea, which was brilliant, that the guys were going to be watching on TV, and then they were going to show the actual footage on black and white television. And they, and they proposed, you know, I saw some of the scripts. Now... The, the 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 producers have doubt denied it. I you know they claim they grew, I grew up in Baltimore. I didn't need any help on the on the, the quiz. Well, they told me the whole text about that this in order for this guy, one of their buddies, to marry this girl, she had to pass quiz on the a test on written test on the Baltimore Colts. And I when I saw it, I thought uh, it was good, but I thought it was um, it, a little too easy. And I just changed them. For example, the colors of the Colts. Well, we're blue and white. So I changed that to uh, what were the original color, colors of the Colts, which were green and gray. Just little little changes like that. I didn't write the quiz. So later, when I started getting some publicity that I wrote the quiz, they they claimed he didn't write the quiz. We were all from Baltimore. We knew all the answers of the quiz. But the, I didn't write the quiz. I wrote, I, I altered it. But... I had no idea it was going to become the smash hit it became. And they premiered it in a small theater in Baltimore. Uh, it you know, caught on there, obviously, and then became became a very, very famous film. But that's how, that, was the, uh, that's, that was the genesis of it. That's how it all, all began. But no credit for you, Ernie, in the uh, credits? No, and I sat there and lo- watched the, you know, the rollout <laughs> where they give everybody credit, including the guy who drove you know, somebody to the airport. <laughs> my name wasn't there. I think by that time they were mad at me because because I was talking about how easy the quiz had been, and uh, and I, I always said, you know, uh, my quiz the, the way I really wanted the quiz it would have been tough for anybody to pass it. So, uh, but no, they 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 never really gave me any credit. It's too bad you still would be collecting royalties to this day, Ernie. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> now, I want to mention one other thing to you. The team was, the if, after the 71 season, Carol Rosenblum traded the team to Bob Ursay, who had bought the Rams. Uh, it was all prearranged. And we lost uh, Klosterman and Rosenblum as owners and got the Ursay family as Bob Ursay. But with that trade came Joe Thomas as the general manager. Now, Joe Thomas had was the first person hired by the Vikings when they were an expansion team, built them into a team that went to all those Super Bowls. They, he, he then was the first person hired by the Miami Dolphins expansion team and built that team that went to one, two Super Bowls, and now we get him. His wife didn't move the first eight to ten months from Miami and Joe was a little lonely and wanted me to go to dinner with him almost every night which I did which was a blessing because he loved to talk about and I had a million questions but he loved to talk about how he built those teams and I'll tell you Christian it was like going to Harvard Business School for player personnel I learned Look, I thought I had in, you have to have instincts in evaluating players. You've got to know what a player looks like, an NFL player looks like when you see him. I understand that. But but I would see a player and I would think but I didn't know really why I saw it. And he he broke it down, taught me the fundamentals, taught me what to look for, taught me how to build a team. 
he's the one who taught me. Well, I didn't have to tell you didn't have to tell me about a quarterback. I knew that from Unitas and Burke Jones. But he taught me pass rush, pass rush, pass rush. And unless you have a pass rush, you're not going to win. And and what a pass rusher looks like. Never never draft a heavy legged defensive end because they're not they're not going to be in a rush to pass. So you're going to have to put them inside. And almost all the principles I ever used in building my teams were established by Joe Thomas. I think he's the best evalu well, he's the best evaluator of talent that I've ever been around. And it was interesting when when Ron Wolf was in the Hall of Fame when he retired at, at his press conference when he retired. He he thanked Al Davis and Bob Harlan of the Packers and, and the president of the Packers and Joe Thomas. So I called Ron. He's a friend of mine. I said, "What do you? Why did you thank Joe Thomas? You never worked with Joe Thomas." He said, "I followed him around like a puppy dog. He was the best evaluator. He taught me how to evaluate talent. I mean, that's how shrewd he was. And when he drafted players, I mean, if there were no computer, he had a legal pad. He would write down the players in order." of how he wanted them. Now, we had Burke Jones. He wasn't going to pick Barkowski. But he went right down the line, and in two drafts, he, he drafted Burke Jones, Roger Carr, who nobody could cover as a receiver, the sack pack in two drafts, who got 150 sacks in three years. And I learned so much from him. I, I mean, you know, he, he, and he never got any. He, he really, no one even knows his name anymore. But... That sale kind of ruptured our, our organization for a while. We ended up, he, we built us, and we won three straight divisions. But that was, that was a great blessing for me because I got an opportunity to learn under him. What about the Browns, Ernie? What was that experience well, like working for an owner like Art Modell? Well, I, uh, I left, I resigned. You know, now listen, I told you earlier that culture was the team of my childhood and the team of my dreams. That was the job of my dreams. But when I drafted Elway and they traded him without my involvement and would, wouldn't see it through, um, I, I, I had all the information on, on his scouting reports in baseball. I got it from the Orioles. In fact, they're all gone now, but the, but the Orioles got it from the scout assigned to him with the Yankees. I mean, he wasn't a prospect, and he was not young either. He wasn't an 18-year-old. And my feeling was I might have to trade him ultimately if he sits out the entire season, but I'll have every team in the league bidding for him in January. Uh, but I also thought that on you know June 15th, if he's hitting 250 in Greensboro riding a bus, i got a pretty good chance he's going to come to camp for $5 million. So... Uh, when they, when they traded him, I finished that season. We went 7-9. and nine, Really, we were in contention twice. Uh, and then I decided I had to leave because I, I, I wasn't going to be. There wasn't a commitment there to, to win. And um, I uh, started trolling around. I didn't have a contract. He, he didn't even give me a contract. So um, I, I was really a free agent, but I still had to be careful of tampering rules. And I got a couple feelers, and, and I got an offer from the Browns. And uh, I took that. I took that because I'm a big guy on tradition, and I really have respect for Art Modell. I, for uh, two summers, 73 and 74, I was on loan to, to the 
management council, which was bargaining. You know, we we had strikes those summers, and um, since I was in Baltimore and they were in Washington negotiating with the players' association, uh, they they borrowed me. So I I got to know the people on the executive committee. Ironically, it was Wellington Mara and um, R. Bodell were on that committee. So I ended up working for them in succession after that. But so Art knew me a little bit, and the Art offered me a job. But I was not a general manager's job. He was assistant to the president for, for one year. And then he fired Sam Ritigliano. He, he promoted me, and we brought uh, we elevated Marty Schottenheimer to head coach. And uh, we he fired – we went 1-7 after the eighth game. He fired Ritigliano. We brought – Schottenheimer was our defensive coordinator. We brought him out to Art's house. <clears throat> Art, and we, because Marty was kind of a hot candidate as it was around the league, and I was only there with him a half a year, but I was really impressed with him, and uh, especially his leadership. And he uh, he sat there, and Art said, I'm going to offer you the job as an interim coach. You can prove yourself in the last eight games. Marty looked him straight in the eye and said, I don't want it. And Art said, what do you mean you don't want it? He said, I, he said players aren't going to play for me if I'm an interim coach. I want a three-year contract or you get somebody else. So Art said to me, Art takes me in the kitchen, okay? And he said, what am I going to do? I said, well, I'm not coaching your team, just so you know that. I said, you better give him a three-year contract. That shows me something right there. And he did. And we went to five straight playoffs, three championship games. He lost three heartbreaking championship games. But it was a great time. Art was a league guy, head of the TV committee. Uh, on all the top committees, close to Roselle, wonderful man to work for, um, cared about you. Um, you know, he he used to, uh, I, I would drive home, I was divorced, so my kids were in Baltimore and were playing sports, and I would drive home and, you know, through snow and sleep around Pittsburgh, and he would be very worried about me. He said, you're going to have to fly home, you're not going to be able to drive home, uh, you know, something's going to happen. I mean, he, he had a real concern, uh, and he was, he was just a wonderful man, and that was, a, that was a great period of my career. Bernie Kosar wasn't a bad quarterback either, Ernie. No, I inherited uh, the quarterback situation when I took over. I wasn't general manager. I was vice president for player personnel, but uh, we, we didn't. That was essentially a GM because there was no GM. But I always say that, that I inherited a worse pitching staff than the 62 Mets. <laughs> I took one look at that pitching staff, at those court three quarterbacks, and said, well, I wanted anything with this team. And and uh, we better figure out a way to get a quarterback. Well, there wasn't, there wasn't anybody in that in that draft in, in uh, 85. I mean, Kozar wasn't, you know, eligible for the draft. But we found out, I got word from Jim Houston, who had been a linebacker uh, with the Browns, who was from the Youngstown area, which is where Bernie was from, that Bernie is so advanced academically that he has a chance to graduate with the first session of summer classes after his second year. It was his second year. Uh, and, and I checked with the league, and there was a loophole. If you graduate, you can... You can't come in a regular draft because you have to wait till you graduate, but they, they'll hold a supplemental draft for you. So um, I tried to get the first pick in the draft. Buffalo had signed 
the first pick in, in, in the draft. So they, Houston had the first pick. And naturally, you know, they weren't going to trade with me because we were in the same division. So I couldn't get the first base on that. And uh, what I was going to do is draft him in a regular draft and then hold my breath that he graduated. If he didn't graduate, I was going to lose the pick. But he wouldn't, he wouldn't trade with me. So I traded. But for the supplemental draft, which is a prelim of next year's draft, the first pick in the draft reverted back to Buffalo. So I, I traded for their supplemental pick, another gamble. But I did do it uh, on, the, on the condition that Kozar graduated. So uh, they're, they're, they were going to have to hold – he was going to have to graduate, and they were going to have to hold a supplemental draft for him. And uh, that's what I did. Well, the, all hell broke loose. Uh the Oilers had traded that pick to the Vikings. They filed a protest. So did the, the so did the Oilers. We went. We all appeared before, and, and it was Buffalo and Cleveland against Minnesota and uh, Houston. We all appeared before Roselle in a hearing. Played, pleaded our cases, and basically my position was: they didn't know the rules. Why should we be penalized? They didn't know the rules. Neither of them did. Um, and now they're complaining that they didn't know the rules. It's not our fault. So Roselle decided to freeze both trades to give uh, Houston, um, give Minnesota one week to recruit him and then give us one week to recruit him. Now the edge was he wanted to play for Cleveland. But I also knew, you know, Marty was a young coach. Uh, Bud Grant was a star in this league. And I knew that once Bud Grant got him one-on-one, that we had a very good chance of losing him. So uh, his agent was a dentist named John Galetka from Youngstown, friend of the family. And Galetka wanted him to come to us, too, for obvious reasons. They were all Browns fans. So when, when the Vikings flew to Miami to recruit Bernie, Galecka said, I'm not going. I said, what do you mean you're not going? I mean, I, you better get there to stop him from agreeing. He says, nope, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not going. I'm going to let it. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be an interference. I'm telling you, trust my strategy. So he didn't go. And uh, he didn't, you know, he didn't say yes to Minnesota. Then we got our meeting with Bernie. And he had to make a decision um, by a certain date. And I remember when that date came, by midnight a certain date, I don't remember what date it was in April, there was a song out called One More Night. I forget who the, the uh, singer was, but it was the reason I kept hearing it was because my daughter was living with me, and she, she kept playing the song. Not that I was that, uh, an expert on the music of the 80s. I grew up with Sinatra in the 50s. So I kept thinking of that song, One More Night, One More Night, and at one minute past 12, uh, the, the Minnesota period expired, and he was ours. So we got him, and he uh, if if we would have had a defense, he would have been in three Super Bowls because he put us ahead in, in the first one with five minutes to go, and he kept tying the game in the second one. We just couldn't stop Elway. But he had, he had a great career, and it's kind of an underrated career. What about the Giants, yeah, he, Ernie? How did your path lead you to reunite with George Young? Well, after eight years, um, 
you know, we hired Bud Carson to succeed Marty when he left to go to Kansas City, and he got us to the championship, to one championship game, and it kind of fell apart for him the second year. So I told Art, you know, I've been here eight years, seven years by then. Um, it, it's pro- and, and the team had gotten old. Uh, Ozzy Newsom had retired. He was our team leader. And I, I said, you know, it's it's probably time for somebody else. And he said, no, I want you to stay. And, and I wanted to go back. My mother was, I'm an only child. My mother was ill, uh, really getting old. And, and um, uh, I, I, he said, would you stay, help me sign a new, hire a new coach. So we, 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 we narrowed it to Belichick, who was on the road to a Super Bowl as an assistant coach that year, and Bill Cower, who was Marty's assistant. We hired Belichick. And I told Art I'm going to stay a year for transition, but then I want to go because I had already gotten pretty good knowledge that Baltimore was going to get a expansion franchise. Uh, they were going to go to two cities. Uh, everybody seemed to indicate Carolina was a shoe-in and that we were going to get the second one. And um, so the governor offered me a job to on that to be on that committee and to help pick the owner. And I thought, well, if, I, if I'm going to be helping to pick the owner, i got a pretty good chance of being a general manager. So I left to do that. I mean, I was certain. I wasn't certain I was going to be the general manager because you never know. Uh, the owner we picked me, and I liked me. But I was certain we were getting the team. Well, we lost out to Jacksonville. So I basically had nothing. And I had we had sold out the stadium on suites and club seats. So I had, you know, sold, I sold those suites to all the corporate people in Baltimore, including the owner of the Orioles. And thank God, I met a man named Matt DeVito, who was head of the Rouse Company, who was the head of our committee, um, knew Peter Angelos. And I had sold a suite to Peter Angelos. I knew him a little bit. And through Matt DeVito's influence, the Orioles hired me. And I was perfectly happy, Christian. I thought, I love baseball anyway. I mean, I wasn't going to be the GM. I was vice president of baseball, of uh, business affairs. But it was a great job. I was, you know, I was uh, in the GM's box every night with Frank Robinson. Uh and, and uh, Roland Heeman. I mean, I learned you know, baseball from them, just listening to them. I, I was really happy. I was living in Baltimore. I was near home, and, and I was perfectly fine. George Young uh, got, a, got sick. He could still work, but they pretty much told him, you know, curtail your negotiations, which are very high, very stressful, and curtail your scouting. And he asked me if you know, he wanted me to come up as assistant GM. And I, you know, in the beginning I thought, you know, I'm I'm 53 years old. Seems young now. It didn't then. Um, and I'm happy. Uh, I don't know if I want to go back into this, you know, this flurry of pressure and everything that goes with pro football management. And I almost didn't take it. If it wasn't for George, I wouldn't have. Um so I eventually took it, and um, thank God, <laughs> you know, because uh, that that was the that was the crowning jewel of my career. That was the part of my career that I treasure the most, and working for the Maras and and uh, working you know for that great franchise. So, but I came close. Now, I mean, I, it was I wasn't the general manager. And the other thing about it, Christian, was 
he said to me, I mean, we were, we were best friends. I, he said to me, I can't guarantee you you're going to succeed me. He said, uh, you know, if the owners don't like you after being here for under me for three or four years, you're not going to get it. I said, I understand that. I, re- I understand there's risk in that. And I didn't know Bob Tish, who owned 50% of the team. As I said earlier, I knew Wellington Mara a little bit. Um, but it turned out, you know, it turned out well. With Eli Manning, Ernie, leading up to drafting him, which of course changed the fortunes of the franchise for years to come and resulted in two Super Bowl championships with him as quarterback. Did you scout him when he was in college? Did you follow his career leading up to the draft in a big way, a medium way, small way? Well, it's interesting because when I took over, I had the same situation I had in Cleveland. I wasn't happy with the quarterbacks. Um, and we had the third quarterback that we didn't play until at least halfway through the 97 season. I wasn't the GM. It was Danny Cannell. And he got us to the divisional title. He played pretty well. I, I mean, he was better than the other two. But, but um, I knew we needed a quarterback. And there wasn't any on the horizon. This is 98. Um, and that's why I signed Kerry Collins, which, you know, he had been traded to New Orleans or released by Carolina and New Orleans signed him, released by New Orleans. Uh, he was a controversial figure, and that was a very, very controversial signing. I gave him a lot of money. I got hammered for that. Um, but I knew he had talent, and I, I did one thing that I learned early. Uh, if, if, if only a few years have passed since you rated a player high, not only me, but our, our organization, don't give up on that rating. Somebody else may be wrong. And if, if you rated him high, go with what you rated him with. Now, if it's 10 years later, it's a different story. So, you know, so we signed him. And it was an upgrade. And, I, you know, I, I wasn't sure how far he was going to carry us, but it was an upgrade. And I, I, I signed him, and, you know, he took us to the Super Bowl in the second year. Uh, and played probably the greatest game in the history of the franchise in the championship game. Five touchdown passes, and we beat Minnesota 41 to nothing. Uh, and then in 2002, uh, I thought that was by far a better team than the Super Bowl team because we had picked up Shockey. We had a 35-17 lead in the fourth quarter against San Francisco in the playoffs. And I had been told by other GMs that nobody – at that point, we were hot. And, you know, it's who's hot at what time unless you just happen to have a super team. Uh, and I don't think – and I was told nobody really wants to play us <laughs> because right now we're hot and Kerry was hot. But we dropped a touchdown pass that would have made it uh, – 39 to 17, and we ended up losing the game uh, in 2002. 2003, and I think 2003 uh, was, we had the after effects of, of that game. And we had, we, you know, we finished bad enough that we were going to have the fourth pick of the draft. Now, l- let me backpedal for one second. In 2003, I said to Jerry Reese, "We're, we're going to have to get a we're going to have to upgrade the quarterback position." And uh, he said, "I said there are rumors that Eli Manning might come out as a junior because they 
they didn't, uh, you know, at that point, uh, they weren't they weren't really good. Um, so, uh, I I uh, this is two thousand the two thousand and two season. Um, he was his junior year. So I went down late in the season, almost froze to death. They put me outside to see them play <laughs> Auburn. Now. Eli, this is a junior year. They they didn't have a player on that team that played in the NFL except I think there was one lineman and one receiver who had cups of coffee. But and Auburn had like three or four number one picks, and Auburn would score quickly, and Eli would take him down the field. That happened three times, and finally Auburn scored it at the end, and Eli took him down the field again through an interception, trying to win the game in the end zone. I wrote a report that has since gone viral. And in fact, one aspect to that report, somebody doctored it to make it even more uh, exaggerated than I made it. <laughs> so it's, it, I don't know what's out there now, but it pretty much went viral. I don't know how it got out, but uh, he didn't come out. And uh, so now he's going to go into his senior year. Now the team's pretty good. And they went to the Cotton Bowl and won it. And I remember I went to see him against Auburn again, this time on the road. And when I came back, I told Jerry, I said, I'm not changing a word. I said, uh, I, I've gone by everything I said as junior year. I'm going to say, and I, no need to write a new report. So now we're fourth in the draft. There are three blue-chip quarterbacks, Eli, Roethlisberger, and Rivers. So I feel confident that we're going to get one of the three, but you, you don't know. You know, you, you don't know. And and uh, now the, the stories surfaced that he may not want to play in San Diego, and I didn't know A.J. Smith at all. And I went up to him in March, draft is in late April, at the league meeting, and I introduced myself to him, and I said, look, A.J., uh, I was in your position in 83, if you're going to see this through and you're going to draft them, no matter what the protests are, I'm all for you. You go right ahead and do it. I said, I, I don't want to be a problem for you. I said, but if you're going to trade them, I'm interested. So, he, we, you know, we didn't talk long. He said, okay, fine, I'll remember that. And we might have talked twice before, maybe two weeks before the draft. And then we had a conversation. He was, He really was insistent on me. As part of the package trading, OC Unimanura, and I said, "Look, I, I'm pretty sure I'm going to have another alternative as a quarterback. I am not passing. I'm not going to trade what I consider strands are going to go to the Hall of Fame. But as far as a young pass rusher, the best young pass rusher we have, I'm not trading him. Going back to what I told you about what Thomas embedded into my mind, because one of the reasons we didn't win those championship games in Cleveland." is we never had pass rush, and we had Elway on all the time in the world. You're not going to give Elway any time. He's going to beat you. So he, you know, I said, no, I'm not going to trade him. If that's a deal breaker, that's fine. Because I, and we rated him. We, we had, we were ready to, to draft Roethlisberger. That was our, that was our second, you know, second choice. And we didn't, there wasn't really much room between the two of them. We liked them both. And, and we liked Rivers too, but, but those were the two that we had ranked one and two. So now we get down to the last week and he, called me and he said, I'll call you Friday and we'll have one last discussion. And he brings up Unimanure and I said, no, no, you're not going to get him. So, uh, I had gotten a call from a media member, a friend of mine, who said to me, he's going to, we, we get 15 minutes to make a choice. 
he said he's gonna when you're when you're on the clock, he's gonna wait till seven or eight minutes, and he's gonna call you and ask for OC again. And uh, I said, okay, thanks. So we're on the clock. He picks Eli. Oakland picks Gallery. Arizona picks Fitzgerald. So we got Roethlisberger if we want him. And uh, I just, everybody said, well, let's pick him. I said, well, now let's wait. I didn't tell anybody about that phone call. So I waited. Now, we had already had, you know, we had already decided as an organization we'd give the next year's number one if we had to, but we weren't giving OC. So he called with seven, eight minutes to go, and he said, if you want him, you're going to have to give me OC. I said, no, I'm not going to give you OC. I said, um, uh, that's final. I said, we're ready to pick Roethlisberger. And he said, would you give me next year's number one? I said, yes, I will. Now, here comes the complication. I said, who do you want? Okay? Now, you're not allowed to draft a player for another team. But, so if I drafted that guy, he was ours. If he backs out of the trade, I got Rivers. He said, I want Rivers, which I, which I had heard. So, okay. Now, once I drafted Rivers, he was ours. And it was not going to be official until AJ and I both called Joel Bussard at the league office and that our calls were identical, our words were identical. And then we had to back it up with computer messages, but he was going to accept it verbally, orally. Well, I was on pins and needles. I mean, you know, because we had, you know, you know how it is. I mean, Rivers turned out to have a brilliant career, but when you're committed to somebody, we were committed to Roethlisberger. So, um, I held my breath. Buster had us both on, you know, two different phones. And I'll never forget these words. Okay, we have a trade. Make sure you send in the computer, but we have a trade. And that's how it, that's how it panned out. It's quite a, uh, a day for you, Ernie. <laughs> yeah. Especially well, all the anxiety. Mean, yeah. And I mean, going in, I, I wasn't, and you know, I wasn't, panicky because of, because we had Roethlisberger but once I once I passed on him that's when I really started to worry because um, and as it turned out I mean Roethlisberger won two titles so did Eli but Rivers played well as well as as all of them so and maybe he would have won two titles with us too you never, you never know but but like I said when you're in that business and you have a conviction you know you want who you have a conviction about and and uh that's why that's why it made us very nervous. The Giants have had so many great quarterbacks over the years, Ernie. You mentioned Y.A. Tittle, of course, Sims, and Eli. Where do you think Eli ranks for the franchise and beyond for the league as a quarterback? Well, I, I, I mean, you know what my opinion is going to be, but I, <laughs> I think if, if, if you look up the most everybody wrote and said uh, when he retired is he he's considered the number one quarterback in our history, and that doesn't take anything away from from Sims and and uh, Connerly or, or Tittle. I, I will tell you this though that I have always felt, and this goes back again to the United, that you pick a quarterback for one reason, only one reason. You don't pick a quarterback to win the passing contest to have the highest rating, to make the most Pro Bowls, you pick a quarterback to win championships. And if you look, if you look at 
it, the history of the T quarterback, which started basically in 1949. Everybody was playing the T except Pittsburgh was still playing the single wing. And you list the championship quarterbacks from 1949 through today. There are about five or six exceptions. They're all Hall of Famers. And so many, and the ones that aren't Hall of Famers are very close to the Hall of Fame, like Sims. I mean, you have, you know, four or five that that are not going to get in the Hall of Fame. I, I think Sims will, but I'm talking about some others. So if the quarterback wasn't that important, why is that the case? So my feeling is that you have to have the great quarterback in order to win the championship, and, and he won two championships. And the interesting thing is, you know, I got hammered again because I gave up so many draft choices. We had four draft choices the following season. And we got Corey Webster, Tuck, and Brandon Jacobs. And frankly, the fourth guy we got, I thought we should have made the team. But without without those three guys, we don't win the Super Bowl in seven or 11. They were indispensable for both of those. Tuck was probably the most dominant defensive player on the field in, in the 207 Super Bowl. Corey Webster intercepted the pass from Favre in the championship game and freezing cold in overtime to set up the winning field goal. And Brandon Jacobs gave us, I mean, he's one of the greatest backs in our history. So we did okay, even even with the trade and how much we gave up, we did okay. What do you like about Daniel Jones, Ernie? And uh, sort of a offshoot of that question, do you think the Jets should try and get Deshaun Watson. Well, first of all, in the Jets, I never comment on what other teams should do. Um, <laughs> they, they they have to make those decisions. Uh, as far as I, I like everything about Danny Jones. I like, I mean, he, he's a good athlete. He can run. Um, he's tough, smart. He's got great size. Um, he's got poise. You know, he's going through periods where he didn't get the greatest protection, but he hangs in there. Um, he's going to have to, you know, I, I worry about when he runs because look at all these guys that sooner or later they get, sooner or later they, you know, they, they get dinged up a little bit. And if they get a square shot, you know, it, it really could be debilitating. So I worry about that. Uh, you can, you know, as long as you get down fast, you can make plays. You can make plays with his legs because he's a great athlete. But I think he's going to be very good. I think he's going to be one of the better quarterbacks in the league. I think that was a great choice by Dave Gettleman and the Giants, and and I really I really like him. What about yourself, Ernie? Do you ever see in the future getting involved with an NFL team again in any capacity? I know you've done some consulting work. Would you like to be part of a front office at some point, or are those days done? They're done, Christian. Uh, <laughs> when I retired after the in, in January of '07, I did not expect really to be in, the, in consulting. I had a couple offers to do, uh, you know, some radio work, not TV, I, and I didn't really want to do that because I, you know, I one of them was XM, and, you, and you're talking to a national audience, and uh, you got to bone up on all the teams. And I, you know, I wasn't about to try to worry about who the left guard. At, Broncos was. I mean, uh, you know, that was too much work. And I just think, didn't expect, but I got it. Thanks to Ray Anderson and Roger Goodell, they offered me a 
consulting position part-time, obviously, with the league, and uh, starting in 2007. And I did that, and I loved it. I mean, I was on several committees and several arbitrations and um, troubleshot some, some problems they had, and, and I, I really enjoyed it. But through that, as an offshoot, uh, the commissioner recommended me to Arthur Blank in Atlanta to consult on their hiring of a general manager. And so I did that uh, with Rich McKay and, and uh, Mr. Blank, and we hired Tom Dimitrov, who uh, did well. I mean, he got him in the Super Bowl, and he won two Executive of the Year awards. So then uh, I was recommended to Jerry Richardson in Carolina, and so I did it again. And then through that, I did the Bears and the Lions. But it first of all, the travel was too much. Um, I, I, I didn't want to fly anymore. I know the Bears, they were looking for a coach and a general manager. It was nine flights to Chicago and then one to Seattle and Denver to interview coaches. I just didn't want to do that anymore. And, I'll, you know, I'm going to be, my next birthday is in October. And if the good Lord's willing to let me live that long, I'll be 80. So, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, it's past my time. I, I look at all these guys being hired. I don't even know who they are. So, uh, they're young, and, and I, it's, it's you know, it's, I leave the game to the young people to, to make their mark. I had my opportunity, and and uh, it's it's a time to step aside. Well, happy in retirement, and certainly have an incredible career, sports writing and NFL executive to look back on, Ernie. And um, it's a real pleasure to talk with you and to have you take the time to. Uh, reflect on all the incredible accomplishments in your life so thank you again for coming on and wish you well in 2021 and beyond well thank you christian thank you for having me on i really enjoyed it and i really appreciate being with you all right take care all the best thank you for listening to the latest episode of stories with street cred i'm your host christian redden